Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Networks in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Roy Barson, psycholytic psychologist, professor, educator, and founder and executive director of the Contemporary Psychodynamic Institute and author of Core Competencies in Relational Psychoanalysis, and I am your host for today. I have the privilege of interviewing psychoanalyst Dr. Henry Markman, author of Creative Engagement in Psychoanalytic Practice, which was released this year by Rutledge. Dr. Markman is in private practice in Berkeley, California, and he's a training and supervising analyst at the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis. I love this book, Henry. Thank you for gifting this important contribution to us. In his work, Dr. Markman has provided an integrated approach where emotional states are shared in an open circuit of communication as the route to self-discovery and growth. The involvement of the analyst's singular and spontaneous self is crucial. Markman emphasizes the therapeutic importance of the analyst's embodied presence and openness, improvisational accompaniment, and love within the analytic framework. Welcome, Dr. Markman. Oh, thank you. Yes. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Uh, I wish to commend you for this excellent, well-written text. Throughout the entire text, there's a vibrancy, I feel, that is elicited within me and the readers that seems to stem from your own liveliness and energy as an analyst. This liveliness seems to have stemmed following your discovery of the centrality of the analyst's presence, authenticity, embodied attunement, and improvisation. My take on it is that you wanted to share with us the power of transformation that emerges within both patient and analyst when attention is turned towards affective states and creative engagement. But that's my take. Tell us why and what did you, you wrote this book and what do you imagine and hope the reader will gain in reading your book? Well, you put it pretty well there, you know, um, Roy, I, uh, I've been teaching for a long time and doing clinical practice, and I was always very interested 
in the the things that really mattered in the work, in my own personal analysis and in the work with others and uh, the more human dimension of, of our engagement. And um, it was something that was not really talked about. More, more, th- more of the discourse was around technique. And what I was gradually gathering and, and forming as a kind of coherent sensibility and approach was a way of locating myself in an emotionally present way with a patient that's embodied and allows for the kind of freedom to meet the patient uh, wherever they are and hopefully create a kind of environment, a, a kind of transitional space to use that language for the patient to, to maybe even emerge for the first time to develop and grow. And uh, that, that was my aspiration clinically. And I wanted to I, I wanted to convey this in one place, like I'd written some papers and I, and I have a series of kind of talks that I've given that are related to this, but I wanted to gather it in one place as a, as a coherent and integrated sensibility. You know, it's still growing. I'm still working on it and developing it, but that's, um, that was my ambition. And I wanted to write it in, a, in an accessible way, not in a jargon-laden way, in a way that was almost like an intimate conversation with the reader that would be like the kind of conversation and atmosphere I would hope to have in my clinical work. So that was that's what I was striving for. And I found that... Um, that it seemed to, to resonate not just with the students I was teaching, the candidates I was teaching, but with more experienced people too, where this this sensibility and way of talking that was outside of a discussion of te- technique was uh, well-received. Was e- it was, people were eager to have this kind of discussion. The other thing is my way of teaching and uh, my ideas was often through illustration. That is rather than, than um, make points, but show how I work, how the ideas that I'm putting forth are, are really alive in what I do. I wanted to make that link. Because, you know, many people when they're learning, they say, well, how does this actually play out uh, in the session? So I, that was a, a big aim of mine to... I, I'm a pragmatist in the sense that, you know, I think ideas um, are useful when they're in action, not in the abstract. And that, that's also the spirit that was guiding me. So there are a lot of, a lot of clinical cases, and, um, yeah, which... Yes, um, I, I wanted to make sure the, the listeners knew that this, is, this book is loaded with uh, uh, cases, uh, the action of, of, of your thinking, yeah. One of the things uh, that I like what I in what you just said is <clears throat> to show how I work. <clears throat> and I think that that <clears throat> is also evident in how you're even working as an analyst with a patient is that the patient is getting in on your mind and your and your emotions and and, and not some abstract uh, idea about them but in participation with them. And 
um, one of the things that you say early in the book is um, that move away from interpretation into a dialogue. Uh, and instead of explaining, I love this line, letting the patient do something with what we say. That's very, it, uh, that's a, a dialogue rather than a monologue. Um, well, I, I certainly uh, believe, see the value and the reality uh, that there are two people in the room, two, sub, two subjectivities in the room that can't be denied. And, that, you know, if we later on talk about mutuality, that is sort of the basis of mutuality, that, that, the, that the person I'm with has, a, in certain ways, as much access to me as I to them. And that, and that to deny that is kind of, I don't know, it's maybe too strong a word, but I, I think it is true. To deny that is kind of bad faith. So, um, so I, that kind of open uh, that that I believe I'm dissentered and in the in the dialogue with the patient, which is and that psychoanalysis is a dialogue. It's not so one person free associating and another person interpreting. Um, cha- really changes um, how I'm talking and how I'm with the patient and how I receive the patient as well. I think of Galit uh, Atlas and Lou Aaron's um, work on this called Dramatic Dialogues. Uh-huh. And yeah. essentially um, moving it again into an um, intersubjective space of play is what I, I would refer to it as. Yeah, I, I would go along with that. I mean, the real, the re- for me, the real founder of that Sensibility is Ferenczi, and I think the the, the the relational group were maybe the first to seize on the implications of his late writing in that way. Why don't you provide for our listeners um, uh, a brief overview of the text, and if possible, maybe even a quick line or two from that highlights the the chapters. Sure, if you could, yeah. Um, so the ch- the book is really uh, meant to be um, not se- not separate standalone chapters. They could be read that way, but most of the chapters were written for the book. There are a few that come out of papers published, but I wanted to write a book in which the chapters built on each other, where the basic assumptions of one chapter lead to the implications that are developed in the next chapter. So um, the introduction is, it was important to me to write because it was, it was, it's a personal account of my development as an analyst to work, uh, and how I got to where I am now to write the book. Because I think um, we all learn from each other about what, how, how we develop. And how we change, and you know, um, uh, people say. Uh, I say to others. People say to me, "Well, I've noticed you've really changed over time in the way that you work, and and where you got to." And I wanted to. I want. I wanted that to be a part of the the, the kind of the. I don't know the tone of of the book that analysts develop and change and grow. And so the, the introduction 
spells that out and how I got to where I am now. The first chapter, Creative Engagement and Over- Overture, is just that. It, it, it lays out the basic intention of the book around the importance, like you mentioned at the very beginning, of the endless spontaneity and creativity and ways of accompanying and so on that are crucial in giving the patient a sense of being recognized and a place for them to be creative and develop. So the first chapter is that overview, and it centers around a very, um, a very, a kind of a long clinical story vignette that that demonstrates that shows. Well, this is how I work given these ideas. So that's the overture. The second chapter is called the development of analytic authenticity, where which is. Um, sort of the, for me, the ethical uh, starting point of, of my work, which is uh, the importance of being oneself, being, being oneself and being true to oneself and honest with oneself in the work with the patient. And maybe we'll talk more about analytic authenticity, which is re- really crucial. Um, so the next chapter is embodied presence, the analyst home base. And that is uh, going from, uh, let's say, ethical intentions and uh, of authenticity to a more embodied place in myself where I, where I um, aspire to receive the patient's communication. And, and that's, that's, we'll imagine we'll talk more about what I mean by presence, but that chapter follows the authenticity. The next chapter, the endless emotional work of surrender and mourning, takes up the ways that we're blocked from being present, and the and the and the very specific kind of emotional work that we do to free ourselves from those constrictions to again be open and receptive to the patient. The next two chapters really emphasize the consequences of the relationship being embodied. Uh, So the fifth chapter is on embodied attunement and participation, really drawing out that level of uh, experience that we have with the patient. That's not about words and ideas and insights, but about bodily communication and responses. The sixth chapter elaborates a different dimension of embodiment, which is that the analyst as improvisational accompanist. That is how we are with the patient in terms of our ways of relating through rhythm and tone and cadence and so on. The seventh chapter is about mutual analysis. It's called one-sided analysis is no longer possible, which is a quote from Ferenczi. And it shows the implications of mutual analysis, which, again, follows from these ideas, all of the ideas that have occurred before that assume a two-bodied analysis. Uh, So the eighth chapter is the radical uncertainty of psychoanalytic practice, um, which, uh, again, is the consequence of the analyst being in a decentered position in the conversation and cannot know 
how they are unconsciously communicating to the patient. And we have to live in that uncertainty. And it also highlights the uncertainty of how much we can know about another. Um, and, this, and the need for a space between rather collapsing it uh, through knowledge. The, the next chapter is the modes of therapeutic time. It takes up two modes of being with the patient. One is the classic Winnicottian idea about um, going on being. That is a much more timeless uh, way of being with the patient, allowing for the patient's emergence as a person in the environment. And uh, you know, that kind of thing can't be rushed. The other kind of time is where we have these, what originally Stern was the first to really draw attention to this idea of moments of meaning, crucial moments that occur in, in the analysis that, that seem to t- change the whole key of the analysis in a different, and take it in a different direction. The following chapter elaborates that further that these moments of meaning I would call beauty. And I describe in that chapter what I mean by beauty and as it occurs in analysis. Um, then, there are a lot of chapters here. Then process and non-process uh, is another way of talking about the ways that either we allow for an open circuit of communication between patient and analyst back and forth, sharing emotional states that um, I, I describe as what the process of analysis is versus non-process, which is an idea from the Behringers of something like a, a block in that communication, a bastion, they call it, or an impasse, that sort of thing. The final chapter is about um, what are the implications of what the previous chapters develop in terms of working in an environment at times that's virtual. And not not just virtual, but in times of crisis, social crisis, environmental crisis, political crisis. And that chapter was written right around the time when in California, uh, California was completely blanketed by dark smoke. Um, And at the this was a run-up to the 2020 election, and um, <clears throat> and COVID was, you know, rampant. So everyone was freaked out, and so I talk about what it's like to work in, an, uh, you know, with with our clients and patients, where we are as vulnerable as they are to what is going on around us, and how that impacts our work. Yeah. So those and, are the chapters. I would say and impact and enhance the work. There, I've, I've found during this time that there's a, um, a deeper understanding of each other and of our co-humanity, I think, through the crises that we continue to experience. Oh, yeah. That's, I, I, would, I would agree with that. There, there are examples that point to that very much, you know. Um, it really breaks, really, it really... Uh, makes undeniable the fact that the analyst is vulnerable, you know, and not in some privileged place. 
Well, thank you that uh, for that excellent overview. I want to take us um, back to the start of the book and on authentic, analytic authenticity and presence. And uh, I had a hint of good things that were ahead when early on in this book, you shifted the emphasis of uh, classical technique, in particular the absence of the therapist's subjectivity and interpretation and insight as the means of change to guiding us into the basic founda foundations of inner subjectivity by calling us into this idea of embodied president, presence. I mean, and I got a kick out of you know, using the quote of um, Bion uh, because he's often seen as quite obtuse and difficult to understand. And you, on, on chapter two, on the development of analytic um, authenticity, you quote him saying, the analyst you become is you and you alone. You have to respect the uniqueness of your personality, and that is what you use, not all these interpretations. That's a powerful <laughs> quote, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, Bion to me is, you know, he's the he's the master of the analytic koan. You know, he's like, he really is. He can be very difficult, but I think he has a sensibility that I deeply resonate with both around this idea of the analyst personality being what we have, what we bring into the analytic encounter, and also his emphasis on, on uncertainty, you know, like the resi resisting what he called, you know, negative capability, the Keats idea of, you know, uh, of restraining from the irritable grasping, you know, for facts. So Beyond, Beyond is a big influence on me. And in the introduction, I talk about that, like how I, Beyond gave me a language and a perspective that I was looking for, very much looking for in freeing myself from certain kind of technical inhibitions, I mean, technique, the inhibitions that I came from technique. So... Presence for me is related to analytic authenticity, but it's it's really the ethical core of of my my sense of what I'm doing. And presence is taken from Gabriel Marcel. I was looking for language uh, to describe what I've sensed in you know my colleagues and in my analyst or in my supervisor certain qualities a certain quality that, that, uh, that made me feel more better or that made me feel freer or that made me feel recognized. And it was not, it was not in understanding. It was something that they, that they embodied. And so I found in Marcel, uh, who was an existential philosopher, he was a Catholic, uh, he was uh, writing at the same time as Sartre and um, Camus and de Beauvoir, that whole group, very much influenced first by Heidegger, but then pulled away from Heidegger. And he, his idea of presence, which he develops and writes a lot about, is presence is uh, one person's permeability, availability, and openness to another that allows the other to basically in, inhabit us. We give us, we, we, one person, one commentator on Marcel talks about presence as the ability to open the door and let someone in. 
Now, this this idea of presence for me is the prime my primary ethical intention. I mean, if I was gonna, if I say, well, why, what, what is, what is your ethic that guides you in your work? And I think all of us, all analysts, you know, interrogate ourselves in that question: What is it that really matters to us? What, what are we doing this for? What do we really believe in? So this is what this is. It sounds simple. Yes, I want to be present for the patient, but it, it's it's not easy to be present. So anyway, I. I, uh, this is my my core value that I want to be present. I want to offer presence. I do believe there's an, a basic therapeutic value to presence, um, in the sense that, and people have talked about this, and this is what I experienced. It's kind of a funny way to say it, maybe I like, but in the presence of presence, uh, I think I, I, one feels renewed. And and more fully ourselves than we than we would be if we were alone. And um, it's not that technique is irrelevant, or that ter- interpretation, or unconscious fantasy, or transference is irrelevant. But I'm really striving for what the ground floor is of what we do. So this is my ethical intention. Now, authenticity is related to that in this way, like. I understand authenticity to be, and this follows very much a line from Winnicott about the true self, that, that to, for me to be an analyst, I have to be myself. I, I have to bring to the, to the encounter my full self, all of whatever I can bring about my capacity for intimacy, for containing emotion, and for and for meeting the patient in in, in creative ways, and I um, that's part of what authenticity is. It all another part of authenticity is being real. So if something's happening between me and the patient, I'm not gonna. I don't want to anyway. Hide behind neutrality or uh, uh, you know uh, a particular analytic stance that protects me from what is really going on between me and the patient. So that, that's another aspect of authenticity. And the, the third part I would say is that, and this comes from, um, comes from beyond, you know, he says, you know, you know, we, we are bounded and, and framed by our relationship. And it also comes from a philosopher, Charles Taylor, who wrote a beautiful book called The Ethics of Authenticity. And he says that authenticity, yes, is the freedom to be ourselves, the importance of being ourselves, but it's also uh, informed by what really matters to us. Like what are our, what are our ethical ideals? And so that is also part of my what I think of as my authenticity what is authentic in me is what I really believe ethically. And that's where the, that's where presence comes in. That's how presence and authenticity are, are related. So authenticity is not just do whatever you want. You know, it isn't that it is, it is bounded by a relationship with another in which I'm 
I'm asking myself what really matters in this relationship in how I am and what I intend. And especially given, um, you know, the, the weighty responsibility of caring for another in this way, you know, in, in an analytic way, I feel is an enormous responsibility. And, um, uh, you know, that is what frame, that is what constitutes the asymmetry is that I'm, however I am with the patient, I'm always trying to attend to my impact on them. And whether it's enlarging their freedom and experience or whether it's disrupting or, you know, um, harming them in some way. This is so stimulating for me and exciting to have you uh, say everything you've just said. And I, I want to um, repeat back to you something really critical that I think I would want our listeners to hear is that authenticity is the idea of opening the door and letting someone in. And that's your primary ethic. And um, this just opens up so many things for me in terms of how I think so often we misunderstand the idea of vulnerability, for example, as um, uh, and authenticity as simply um, sharing my own story or burdening the patient sometimes with my own um, story to compare it to theirs or, or, or what in a, in a self-disclosure or something. But what you're really bringing up here, and, and one of the things that I, I like what you say about embodied presence is that it is our spirit of openness and welcoming and emotional availability. It is offering a place for another within us. Uh, and, and as you say, opening the door to let them in. That, that is a wonderful reframe of, I think, presence and authenticity. And then the other thing you say that I think is um, connected and critical to this is that authenticity is also never singular and that the ethic is in our in our own freedom of of authenticity. It's never an uh, individual thing. It's always in the context um, uh, towards the other. And this Levinas comes in as the the significant other that we create our ethic around. And our authenticity is not uh, freewheeling. It is in relationship. Yes, uh, that uh, that's right. That's beautifully put. I think. I think we, there's a tension there that just needs to be held, which is uh, my, just to be personal, like my need uh, as an analyst to be my full self, to be spontaneous, to, there, you know, you'll see in the, in the book, there's, you know, there's vignettes where I'm quite myself, you know. I respond in spontaneous ways, uh, but... I think that's that's essential for me in in terms of ha- having an alive presence for the patient, but um, it, it has to be bounded by the needs of the other, and um, so that sometimes I have to be very quiet and very reserved which and very uh, almost laconic which is not necessarily in my nature you know but but i but it's for i i understand 
why that's important. And in that sense, it's not hard for me. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think you um, tie tie some of this together in in your chapter on surrender and mourning, where you where you start there with saying, "We therapeutically engage patients through holding, containing, and." being with and living through transformational moments. So this connects very much to the vulnerability and the presence and authenticity in relationship to the other. And that the surrender and mourning is around this idea of being with and living through. I'm wondering if you can say more about what you're talking about around surrender and mourning and being with and living through. Um, Well, Uh, For me, and I don't know, I'm speaking for me, but I know I'm probably speaking for others, that there are things in me that I want, I hold on to in a kind of self-protective way and uh, that that block, huh? I I didn't hear you. Yeah, only me, only me. I I can only speak for myself. There may be one or two others that that relate to what I'm saying. Uh, That, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, when I do supervision, so much of supervision is is uh, is at this edge, which is like me and the supervisee noticing where they're closed off or where they are having trouble handling a, handling a particular emotion, embodying a particular emotion that the that was communicated by the patient or shared with. But anyway, so <clears throat> I surrender more and mourning is an idea that. We, we are we are blocked, and we're blocked more often than we know. I mean, I have a patient who's just so wonderfully helpful. Whenever I'm like, feel like I'm on my game, you know, and blah blah blah, and she, she'll she'll say something like, um, "Oh, you think you've mastered things now, have you?" You know, like uh, like it's so helpful because. However I am, there's always a part of me and my, my nature to, to want to be on top of things, you know, want to be in the know, want to understand. And it's, it's automatic, it's unconscious, and it's blocks my, it, blocks, it closes the door to presence. Um, so in surrender, and this, this is what Marcel talks about, he talks about people who are not... Uh, open but are disabled he he's very uses very strong words disabled or or distorted by their constriction uh, and um, for analysts for me I know 
consciously and unconsciously that that is happening or that will happen. I'll, I'll inevitably fail in my aspiration, you know, to be present and um, at some point. So the more, so usually it, I find it in my body. Like I notice I'm resisting certain feelings in my body I, that I don't like, you know, because as I say, I like to feel, you know, like I'm on top of it. And so there are feelings in my body that are bothering me, that are making me uncomfortable. I don't like, maybe I'm feeling sad or angry or anxious or whatever. And I, and I, I, want, I want to get away from those feelings consciously and unconsciously. They're very, there are a lot of ways that analysts have, a lot of tools that analysts have to get away from inhabiting emotional states. You know, they can think about good interpretations. They can think about what the patient is doing to them to make them feel bad. You know, there's a whole, whole array. So surrendering is what Marcel calls it, a, a, a inner relaxation. Yeah, I like that. I, Say more about it's, that. It's, 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 it's probably a better term than surrender. It's, um, it's the sense of allowing oneself to inhabit what, what is most difficult, what one, what one wants to resist. And so, and, and in some ways it's like, okay, I'm going to let myself be pulled by the current. I'm going to just feel what I feel. So there are many examples of this in the book, like where I'm really struggling with certain feelings, like a certain feeling of deadness with a patient that I can, I can barely stand, or traumatic states that I, I, I don't want to go to. I don't want to open up. I don't want to open that up. I don't want to enlarge that uh, experience. And I can feel that on myself, and I'm fighting it. And if I can become aware of it, usually through my body, then I have a. I usually have a way of letting it go or surrendering. Um, uh, and then I feel calm. It's you know, there's a, then there's a calmness in the in even in the while feeling whatever I resisted. The morning part is I have to let go often of certain pictures of myself, like the the knowing analyst or or the one in the, the, the one who the ex, the ex has expertise the one who knows more than the patient the one who has more than the patient or um, all kinds of idealized views the authority of the analyst my in the analytic position the power inherent in that that that's that always somehow has to be mourned in my experience, almost to the point like where I just wonder, am I doing am I doing analysis now? Am I an analyst? And that's because I've let go of of a kind of a, a support that protects me from what the intensity of the impact with the patient. When I can let go that way. I, I feel like I can join the patient in ways that something transformative can happen. That, but I feel like it has to be the two of us, you know, that the transformation takes place in that, in sometimes in that moment of sharing a, a, a vivid emotional experience. 
when I was reading about uh, your case of Robert, I, I think we had the same patient, <laughs> but I think maybe mine was the most boring patient more than even yours. But anyway, uh, it created a, a tremendous amount of deadness in me as you, and you use that word. Um, and we sat for wait, for a very long time in this deadness. Neither one of us could ever remember our, the story, the work, or anything. My eyes would get heavy and glaze over. It was it was a, really quite horrible. And um, when um, I won't go into the whole case, but what happened is when I finally got let that be embodied in my body, which you're getting at, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and going, this is unbearable. And then mm-hmm. I brought that unbearability into the room, into the subjectivity of his sub- subjectivity, is when finally the, there was a breakage into what was behind this deadness that we had just been sitting in. And so it cap- Robert's case really captivated me because I had a very similar experience by attending to my body and bringing my body into another body is what became the intervention. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what yeah, I had to give right. up from that, to use your morning idea, is I had to give up the idea that I uh, could keep sitting in this interpretive role with him and succeed. Yeah. But, yeah, that's a very good example of what I'm talking about. And then what, you know, this idea of living through that you can't get around, you can't get around these terrible states. You have to be in them for them to transform. And when you are when you when the patient i feel finds a companion in in these states cuz these states are unbearable for the patient when there is a when there's a kind of companionship or what i call accompaniment various forms of accompaniment that's when transformation can occur like the patient might feel recognized might you know might feel like oh this is bearable with another and you know emotions aren't static, and then things might evolve, and sometimes they evolve in really surprising ways. But there's no way around the, these 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 very very difficult emotional places, except except through the body, really. As you see, that's why uh, I think when you just use the word accompaniment, you also use the word improvisation and the whole idea of um, co-creating rhythmic preverbal encounters that sort of bring us into being and the whole is music and is a really good example of how we are trying to find the sound of the other and why jazz i think is such a good um analogy for psychoanalysis and and how you use that in the book as well yeah i am you know i'm a big lover of music and jazz and um I, I had read Knobloch's book on jazz and psychoanalysis. That had a big influence on me. Um, and I was thinking about in, uh, li- how I listen to jazz and how, where I position. If I were translating like a small jazz ensemble into psychoanalysis, where I would posi- where was I? Where was I? Like I'm not a great musician, but I I pictured myself as the drummer, you know. In the ensemble, like, like accompanying, creating, supporting the soloist in various ways, and uh, I said, "Well, that is a pretty good metaphor for 
for what I'm trying to do. You know, like I found, I felt like I found an embodied metaphor. Uh, I mean, a metaphor for an embodied way of being with patients. And then I thought about, well, you know, there are all kinds of drummers that accompany in different ways, depending on the the song or the soloist. And that made sense to me in psychoanalysis too, you know, that there were different forms of accompaniment depending on where the person is and what the, what kind of accompaniment the person needs, you know, where some people need a kind of supportive, consistent, constantly rhythmic support. Some people need a very sparse um, kind of uh, atmospheric support, you know, a trans, you know, like a, an atmosphere, yeah, an atmospheric support. Others need a more disruptive uh a kind of accompaniment that allows that pushes them uh, to to get to some place that they wouldn't otherwise, and then there's um, you know the kind of accompaniment that's just playful. You know, trading fours is that you know inside, you know, like trading uh, you know beats with each other. And I I thought that was helpful for me to see it that way. And I I have a son who's a jazz musician. And he, yeah, he was very helpful and kind of, we had long discussions about this and, you know, which drummer and, you know, so, and he's acknowledged in, in there. Uh, so, um, so I think about that, this, you know, this brings us in our conversation from the embodied way of inhabiting difficult states to just the overall um, embodied way we are with patients in a general way, you know, and that's that's where we I think about like embodied attunement and embodied accompaniment. And I think all this is so well integrated into uh, the idea of process and uncertainty and presence and all that. And uh, I'm just going to quote you here, but <clears throat> you say the work of accompaniment is not always or even often pleasant and easy because it involves our increasing capacity to bear uncertainty, confusion, suffering, allowing with us to be with the patient in various forms of accompaniment, um, knowing their rhythm, affect, and experience as communicated through our body. So I, I think it's, uh, as you started earlier, you wrote you wrote this book, so it could be a, sort of an integrated from chapter one through the end. And I think this is a, a, a kind of an integrative statement of presence and authenticity and um, mourning and surrendering and um, how we accompany and what the cost of accompaniment is. It's fun, but it's also nerve wracking <laughs> at times. Yeah, it is nerve wracking. It's uh, it's just so much of what we're doing. We're not is is living in a, an uncertain space. But <clears throat> I have to say that we, we, haven't met, we haven't mentioned a word that I think is very important, which is love. Yes, please. And I think that I think that um, love is part of this too. I, I mentioned a bit of it in the overture chapter. It should have it, it should have des- it probably deserves its own chapter. But I think of love as the is loving the process of doing the work. And in loving the process of doing the work, which which is about really 
getting to know another person and, and seeing another person come forward and maybe come to life or maybe um, become more creative or be, a, in, be involved in that kind of process with someone is where I, is one way that I feel love. And, and my commitment to the work is in loving that whole process. So that, may, that also helps me in, you know, times when I'm confused or, you know, in a disagreeable state or tired, or, you know, drained or like, it helps me, you know, um, stay with what's going on is that ultimately I really, really love what I'm doing. And uh, and I and in loving what I'm doing, I'm loving the patient. Yeah, that's leaving me with so many thoughts, and and I, I think what I want to add to that that part of the love that I've discovered is the joy of seeing of being a part of somebody of being a part of somebody's expansion of their own understanding of themselves, and that is such a there's something about being able to love our. I was saying to some students yesterday that um, that old saying about you can't you can only take your patient as far as you've taken yourself. And I said I don't think that's true. And this is related to your idea of love. I said I think many of my patients have have exceeded me, <laughs> um, but I have the, uh, a joy about that at some level. It's because uh, because of the love of doing the work that brings people into a deeper understanding of themselves. And I said, if, I think if we can't enjoy the expansion of another human being, then we shouldn't be in this work because it'll wear us out. Nobody yeah, I don't think we're in the that. business of making mini-me's, you know? No, <laughs> no, one of me is enough. I can assure you of that. <laughs> um, so we're running out of time, unfortunately, but I want to give you some time to also tell us um, – how this, how has, how did this book, um, how did it affect you to write it? Because it's a very heartfelt, loving text and um, full of your patience. So it had to be a very move. You know, writing is not easy, but you're 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 present in this work and it's lovely. And um, yeah, and I'm wondering how you might have been changed or influenced just in the writing of it. Um. Well. At first, I, I would say that I'm not a born writer. You know, I have friends who are like, you know, that's really their identity. And I'm much more, I much more identified myself as a teacher and communicating more, or, you know, in words, uh, spontaneous, oral, you know, teaching orally and more spontaneously. And in that way, in my teaching, I bring myself in pretty well pretty, you know, openly. And I wanted to have that same kind of quality in the writing. Um, in that sense, the writing, you know, was really fun. I mean, it was fun to um, finally get these ideas uh, out of my head and out of the air and into something more concrete. And I and I found that I really also loved the um, the editing part of of the writing and you know you know really kind of trying to craft uh, a, a form and play with the form 
the hard part of the writing for me was, um, well, this is what George Saunders, the writer, says, that editing is about stripping away uh, various levels of your bullshit, you know, basically. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But, but, but I think that's really true. And so there's certain things, and my, I, I have a friend and, a, and, a, and my wife who read this who, can, who have very, very good BS detectors and know me really well and know when I get involved in stuff that's just because I'm interested in it, but it's not really that important to other people or, you know. So, so that was the hard part of the writing, but also I learned a lot about myself in the writing. I learned like... Um, the ways that I might portray things that are not really, I, I don't know, there, maybe there's too much ego involved or uh, there's too much of a need for a straw man or, you know, that kind of stuff that, has, that I wanted to get out of there, but I needed somebody to say it's in there to get out, you know. Um, but, but all in all, I, it, I wrote it very quickly, maybe in a year and a half. Uh, and I had a, you know, I did, my practice was every Saturday morning I would write. And that was it. Wow. Well, good for you. Any final words you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I, I would want to encourage all, all analysts, you know, and analytic therapists, because I don't make that distinction really, to, um, to really pursue what feels most alive and real to them in their work. And and to re, and to develop their sense of create your creativity, and really notice when they encounter institutions or teachers that um, impact that uh, creativity in a negative way, and um, and that that this is a kind of process that continues throughout one's career. So I would just encourage wise, wise that. Word. Yeah. Well, I've had the privilege uh, today of interviewing Dr. Markman. Title of his book, Creative Engagement in Psychoanalytic Practice. And Henry, I really want to thank you for your vulnerability uh, and for showing up in your writings and demonstrating the power of presence. And um, I've had a very pleasant morning um, being with you and being pre in your presence uh, as we um, hopefully have creatively spoke of this wonderful work of yours. So thank you uh, so much for, for today. Oh, thank you, Roy. It was a real, real pleasure for me too.